It's a nice Merlot. Oh, very good. What what vintage is it? It's 2018. Very good. Where's it made? New South Wales. Hopefully there's no COVID in it. Sorry, I've rearranged my computer. Do I look a bit funny from this angle? No, you look fine. I was surprised you were ready to do this already. Well, I moved fast. I thought it was going to be a bit later in the week. No. Okay. Are you good? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello and welcome to episode number 32 of Celluloid Junkies. My name is Damien Heath and I'm joined as always by my roseate co-host Luke Kane. You're what? Roseate. What is roseate? You don't understand. It means that you resemble a rose, often especially in colour. Is that a real word? Roseate, yes. Okay. Thank you, that's lovely. I'm surprised you haven't asked in the past about these descriptors that I give you in each episode. I've understood all of the others. Oh. And I've agreed with all of them. Well, T-I-L. Roseate. (laughs) This month we are travelling down the back roads of Texas in search of adventure. Just a group of friends out in this scorching summer heat, grateful to be alive with the Vietnam War fading away in the rearview mirror. The beat-up old van is guzzling gas and sputtering along and... Oh, look, there's a hitchhiker. Should we pick him up? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, what could go wrong, right? Exactly. Don't want to be paranoid. We're here to dissect one of horror cinema's most iconic entries, Toby Hooper's 1974 low-budget masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What happened was true. most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. as real, just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it.
Toby Hooper may as well have been born with a camera in his hand. His father owned the Capitol Hotel, which housed a movie theatre at which young Toby spent a lot of his time. When he was three, Toby started using his dad's 8mm movie camera and even went so far as to hand in some of his school projects as motion pictures rather than essays. At age 19, he began working with the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas and it was there that he made contact with head of local TV station KLRN. That contact, Robert Schenken, allowed Hooper to access to 16mm cameras, and he soon had roles shooting footage for the station and, eventually, a documentary on folk group Peter, Paul and Mary. Hooper would also meet Kim Henkel at this university, when Henkel acted in Hooper's first feature-length movie, 1969's Eggshells. In that psychedelic hippie film, Henkel's character sets fire to his car and his clothes and frolics naked through a meadow. They should burn every copy of that film, Henkel now says. After that, Toby and I became casual friends. He wanted me to develop a script with him. No budget, coupled with the success of George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead in nearby theatres, led Hooper and Henkel to settle on making a horror film. They collaborated on a screenplay alternately known as either Head Cheese or Leatherface, but which would eventually become the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. How they came up with the story is now the stuff of myth and legend, so pick your favourite tale and run with it. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre may be based on Ed Gein, a serial killer from Wisconsin who lived a life of isolation on a 195-acre farm. Gein's mother, his best friend, died in 1945 and Ed began exhuming graves of recently deceased women who physically resembled her. From those bodies he cut off artefacts including skin, nipples, skulls, genitals, noses, lips and fingernails. From those artefacts he made bins, lampshades, chair seats, bowls, leggings, belts and, yes, face masks. In 1957 he went one step further, kidnapping and murdering the owner of a local hardware store, decapitating her and putting her heart next to his stove, presumably to cook later. For this he was finally arrested. Or maybe it really was as simple as Toby Hooper's Christmas shopping trip to a Montgomery Ward department store. The crowds were intense and Hooper found himself in the hardware section of the store. His attention was drawn to a nearby chainsaw, which the filmmaker daydreamed would allow him to make a hasty exit. Lou Perryman, who was an assistant cameraman on Chainsaw, and who would act for Hooper in Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, says that Hooper garnered inspiration for the story from him, as he owned and used a chainsaw to cut wood for heat when he was living out in the woods, and Hooper was apparently terrified of the power tool. To his credit, in amongst the varied and changing stories of the film's development, Hooper himself has always stated that the major inspiration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the old EC Comics. Produced in the 1940s and 1950s, EC Comics were ahead of their time, often dealing with progressive topics and touting racial equality, anti-war advocacy, nuclear disarmament and environmentalism. But they were also controversial, printing mature stories in the horror, crime, war, fantasy and science fiction genres. Closely mimicking the pressure from censors that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would later face, comic books in general came under fire in the early 1950s as being a cause of juvenile delinquency, as detailed in psychiatrist Frederick Wortham's 1954 book Seduction of the Innocent. Instead of facing likely government oversight, 
the comic book companies initiated the Comics Code Authority, which, like Hollywood's Hayes Production Code, would oversee and adjudicate on controversial topics. Two years after the Code's implementation, EC Comics ceased to exist. Quote, They were packed with the most unspeakably horrible monsters and fiends, most of which specialised in mutilation, Hooper would tell Cine Fantastique magazine in 1977. I started reading these comics when I was about seven, and I loved them. To enjoy them, you had to accept that there was a boogeyman out there. Since I started reading them when I was young and impressionable, that overall feeling stayed with me. A lot of that mood went into the film, along with Hitchcock's methods of manipulating an audience." End quote. Indeed, Ed Gein had also been the basis of Robert Bloch's novel Psycho, which Alfred Hitchcock adapted into a famous film some decade and a half earlier. Toby Hooper and his cast and crew shared closely the sensibilities that made those EC comic stories so progressive. So, naturally, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came to be about more than just a group of kids being massacred. It came to decry the end of the hippie movement of the 1960s, the lost promise of that innocent utopia. Vietnam was coming to an end, but the horrors of war were prevalent on television sets across the United States, and demonstrations turned to riots. But the antagonists are the victims too. The family has been cast aside by technological advances, their work at the slaughterhouse made redundant thanks to air guns that humanely negate the impact of sledgehammers. It was just another in a long line of reasons not to trust the government. A line that ended in real life two months before the release of the film, with the resignation of President Nixon. Initially proposed on a budget of about $60,000, the filmmakers would consistently use up and then raise more capital during filming of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hooper and Henkel created Vortex as their production company, which initially owned 100% of the film and which covered all participating actors and crew. Over time, however, that 100% was consistently eaten away at. Half to Jay Parsley, the film's primary investor, another 19% to Pie in the Sky, one of the groups contacted after initial funding had dried up, Strangely, after release and despite huge crowds and box office figures, the distributor was able to share only a pittance with the film's producers once investment had been repaid. 25 lawsuits since the film's release should tell you all you need to know about how that was received. Gunnar Hansen's own recollections of what he was paid leave a lot to be desired. In the four decades since Chainsaw's release, my share in Vortex has produced only about $8,000. Let's put on our rose-coloured glasses, though. The minimal budget that Hooper, Henkel and co. were forced to work with elevated the naturalism of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It allowed set decorator Bob Burns to scour second-hand shops, abandoned buildings and roadsides for cheap or free clothes, furniture, bones and more to set a macabre scene. It allowed Daniel Pearl to shoot from creative angles so as not to get the minimal 40-foot dolly track in shot using 16mm film that took on a grainy documentary film when blown up to 35mm for screenings. It allowed Hooper to edit with pace, not lingering on special effects shots because there were none. The unseen became more important than the scene because it led to the imagined, which became the movie's strongest factor. And so it became that a small film, made by no more than 30 or 40 people, which should have had a limited run on a few drive-in screens in Texas in the summer of 1974, is still talked about almost 50 years later as one of the genre's enduring classics. 
and its main antagonist, a mentally impaired young man who vacillates between genders a full year before Tim Curry's sweet transvestite, and whose face is never seen, would inspire an entire subgenre of horror called the slasher. Luke, what are your first recollections of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Well, I can't remember when I first saw it, but it must have been when I was a teenager. Or maybe maybe shortly after that. I think I probably rented it at the video store. Because mm. I remember when I started working there at 18, I was just every week I was taking out dozens of classic films and just binge watching. I was a bit repelled by the low budgetness of it and by the grainy quality of it. And the otherness of the movie, just the feeling of it not being from my time, not really having seen anything low budget from the 70s, I guess. I remember thinking the film was horrible and scary in parts, but I, I wouldn't call it an immersive experience. I think I was watching it feeling quite divorced from it. That's interesting. I always think that your first experience with the movie was, you know, you were so sure of the movie from the very beginning. Because I had that same first experience as you. For me, it was it was too real. It was too confronting. It was too, like, right there in your face. And the big thing that really got to me was the sound design. There was all of that screaming, the sound of the camera flashing and then disappearing, the chainsaw itself, the door slamming. It just created such a full-on atmosphere that was almost inescapable. And the word that I can use to describe it is that it was uncomfortable to watch. It was uncomfortable and it was just downbeat and ambiguous. I mean, ambiguous in terms of morally, obviously, you know, it wasn't ambiguous in terms of the brutality. I didn't immediately love it, but I was fascinated by it. I found myself thinking about it and then I would sort of rewatch it and rewatch it. The older I get, the more I appreciate it. And I would have seen it like 50 times now. I've always loved roller coaster movies and now I look at it and I think that it really is like a, a scare machine. Looking at it now, it has a lot to say. I think it has a lot to say about the meat industry and family dysfunction, particularly sibling dysfunction, even exploits the sense of otherness between city and rural people. But all of that I think is secondary to its primary objective, which is to assault the viewer with terror imagery. Only in retrospect and when you've seen the film a million times do do some of the more analytical or symbolic ideas of the film start to take shape. Yeah, although I'm surprised that there are as many analytical themes running throughout the movie. Gender, the role of gender in family is another one that comes up time and time again in this movie with Leatherface's masks and what he means to the family, the roles that he takes on. But I would agree with you, this movie is probably one of the more vegan horror movies I've ever seen. So I was wondering, because I did read a couple of things about Toby Hooper saying that it's about the meat industry. Do you think that he, on your research, do you think that he consciously set out to make a statement? The majority of what I read was that this was a horror movie that they were making because horror movies were the cheapest movies to make. It wasn't a statement film that they were making. It just happens to have had retrospective statements applied to it. That's what I would lean towards. I don't think Toby Hooper could have anticipated that Texas Chainsaw would be such a watershed moment in horror and that it would capitalise on all of these changes that were happening socially and politically. 
I mean, certainly, though, these films are not made in a vacuum. And so I don't think it's accidental that this is seen as, say, in retrospect, as a pro-vegetarian film, vegetarianism film, than as is a pro-meat film. If he, if he clearly didn't have any intention of making those statements, then it could have gone either way and it could have ended up being ho- horribly different than what he believes in real life. The other thing about watching it today that we can't really appreciate is just how much this film disturbed the social conscience at the time and how how much of a phenomenon it was. I was surprised. I sort of thought when I do my release and reception that I'd see the film slowly turn to profit, but it was enormously successful immediately. Mm. That bothered a lot of people. I'll read you this review from Pauline Kale, which wasn't particularly about Texas, but it's about the films like Texas. She wrote in 1973 in a review that the new generation wants an intensive dose of the fear sickness, not to confront fear and have it conquered, but to feel that crazy, inexplicable delight that children get out of terrifying stories that give them bad dreams. In 1975, the New York Times published this really condescending article, which mentions Texas, called So What Do You Do at Midnight? You See a Trashy Movie. Did you find this? I didn't see this, no. The writer interviews an unnamed executive of a film distribution company in New York. The article references Texas Chainsaw amongst a few other films and quotes this guy. And he says, we're simply exploiting a generation of children raised on excitement. And every kid who owns a pair of blue jeans thinks he's going to find the spirit of his generation in a midnight movie house. Forget it. It's all crummy kink, banal camp, bad sex. Jesus, why am I complaining? For me, it's a terrific cash flow. (laughs) Is that one of the executives from Bryanston? (laughs) Could have been. No, he was unnamed, so I have no idea. The people like Pauline Kael and Vincent Cambys, they did not know how to react. And I think... You know, a lot of actors talk about how for eight years after the film came out, they could not get a role. And people would say, I was in Texas Chainsaw, and they would go, huh? Like, they would either not know or they would be repelled by that. I mean, how could they not know? It was a massive success. I don't know, but I mean, you look at Toby Hooper, it's not like he immediately took off because it took him two years to make another film. And then when he did, it was another kind of low-budget horror film that was loosely inspired by a true story. A new high in screen horror. Neville Brand, Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman. The terror never stops in Starlight Slaughter. Rated R. Two years in this industry back then probably seems like a lot of time, but the nature of a low-budget film that you take on the road and you promote means that a lot of your time is probably spent doing the screenings of that movie in that subsequent two years. Honestly, for him to turn around a film two years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre was quite, quite an achievement. Unfortunately, it turned out to be eaten alive. Really, he wasn't shooting for three years because, like you said, it took a good year to edit the film. I think that Texas reflects a change in expectations from audiences. I think they wanted more intensity. I think they wanted less polite cinema. The the grittiness of the image and the way that the camera never really interferes with the action, it kind of closes the gap between the image and the viewer. You know, you feel that gap very prominently in films of the 60s and the 50s. And even today, mostly with like, you know, the real stylized cinematography, you feel, oh, that there's the movie and here's me. And you're conscious of the space between you and the image. The fact that Texas Chainsaw is so raw closes that bridge a little bit. I think that's probably one of the reasons that we were put off 
it sort of had this raw, nasty, gritty, ugliness about it. The film does represent almost a generational shift in values. Because we had these kids that were seeing Texas, they were raised on the atrocities of war. They'd shed the shackles of blind patriotism. They developed a healthy mistrust of government and they wanted horror films that were more honest than fairy tales. They wanted more than when the bad guys lose and the good guys win. They wanted grey areas acknowledged. That one article from the New York Times actually represents a slew of articles that were published that reflect those intergenerational tensions. Uh, Certainly, I think in terms of horror cinema, you make a good point there because what was horror cinema before the 1970s and before things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the cannibal films coming out of Italy, The Last House on the Left from Wes Craven? It was really those filmmakers. It was Wes Craven, it was Toby Hooper, it was John Carpenter. Texas Chainsaw was one of the tentpole films of the grindhouse cinemas, which were basically just cinemas that were paranoid about television wanted to be able to show and do something that they couldn't show on public stations. And so a lot of films were made exclusively for grindhouse cinemas, and they were mostly trash. It's just that Texas Chainsaw happened to be, on the surface, gritty, dirty exploitation film that actually was genius. The exploitation films, the grindhouse films, they were doing women's rights. They were doing black pictures. They were bringing minorities. They were doing leather faces in in drag. You know, Rocky Horror was a small budget film that that took its time to find success and became a cult film. And that was a film about transvestism as well. There's all of these examples of those exploitation. And that's such an ugly word. But yet in film, it means so much more. You see... They say it's just an old man talking. You laugh at an old man. (laughs) There's them that laughs and knows better. Obviously, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was very low budget. It couldn't afford to include any special effects, which is why I said before there were none. But it definitely has a reputation of being far more violent, far more bloody, far more gory than it actually is. How do you think that's possible? The documentary realism quality of the film, which is not only in terms of, you know, how it presents it in news reports and as a true story, that there are these constant radio stations that are on reporting bizarre crimes, that we get that recurring sound of that camera, famous now, horror sound, which constantly reminds us that everything we're watching in actual time is going to be photographed later by police. We totally believe and buy that. This film is depicting events that could have happened. There's nothing that's not secular in the film. Everything is very grounded in reality and everything's earthy. Rob Zombie said, usually movies look like movies. This just looked like you were there. I know Toby Hooper edited with others, but I assume Toby Hooper was probably the driving force of the editing here. And from what other people have said In subsequent interviews, it seems like certainly Toby Hooper was in charge of that. But the tightness with which he edits this film is spectacular. The, the, you know, shaving off a, a few frames here and a few frames there. And he really gets this down to the point that in a horror movie, you await the death scene. Certainly somebody who's acting in a horror movie, they want that big moment where they die, right? Well, Texas Chainsaw doesn't give that to anybody. It doesn't give it to the characters. It doesn't give it to the actors. It doesn't give it to the audience. It is so matter of fact about how it goes about killing these people. And that's almost scarier in a way. I mean, certainly when Kirk and Pam are killed, 
that feels like the first scene of real fever pitch horror. Yeah. The um, arrangement of the shots when he lifts Pam up. I mean, this comes after we've seen her fall on that jar, land in a bunch of feathers and teeth and bones, look around. And then as she's trying to leave the house, Leatherface opens up the sliding door. She almost gets away and grabs her. And the power of him with, with this tiny girl is, is just a terrifying image. <laughs> then we see her clawing at him, scratching at him to get away, but looking totally powerless. You know, Leatherface's power completely overwhelms her. She genuinely looks like she doesn't stand a chance because she's really fighting him. And then, of course, the scene where he then lifts her up onto the hook. I swear to God, I've watched it 40 times. I feel like I see that blade go into her back. Hmm, and you never do. But it's just because the editing is arranged so meticulously and so well. People would have walked out of the movie watching it for the first time on a big screen. Certain they had seen that hook go through her back. Two things that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in terms of mythology, has going for it is that it was released in a time where there was no quick turnaround to television, there was no video cassette, there was no streaming services, and there was no internet to go back and check whether something you had seen was real or not. So how do you disprove something like that? It all becomes part of the mythology of the story. And I think there was a really good quote that I read once, which was, When you remember something, you don't actually remember what you're talking about. You remember the last time you remembered it. Yes, and I think we forget that our eyes are just lenses, but our mind controls what we actually see and what we register. If you're in 1974, unless you've seen Last House on the left, you've seen nothing even remotely in the ballpark of this film. When we are stressed or when we feel tension, our mind does play tricks on us. We think we've seen more than we have. I mean, I don't really think we can even empathize with people in 1974 who saw this, or certainly with the MPAA, who were the ones giving Toby Hooper a hard time. He played them meticulously, by the way. He was determined to get a PG rating, and he would call them up while he was shooting and ask questions like, how do you think I can get a PG rating if I put a girl on a meat hook? <laughs> I get the feeling he might have been a little, uh, might have been a little optimistic with that. A PG rating at the time might have helped him out in terms of cinema, but PG-13 didn't exist at the time, as far as I know, so it was either PG or it was R. Anyway, he submitted the film, the MPAA said, uh, no, this is an X rating. And so he shaved off seven minutes and he, they lowered it to, a, uh, to an R rating. But, I mean, the film struggled so hard in foreign markets, including Australia, France, Ireland, Norway and Singapore, and particularly Britain. Is this it struggled so hard box office-wise or to get a rating? To get a classification so that it could legally be released. Yeah. James Furman of the British Board of Film Classification, BBFC, he banned the film outright. He refused to deal in what he called the pornography of terror. And they officially didn't sanction the film until 1999. Yeah, that was the BBFC, which back then was called the British Board of Film Censors, which I find to be quite an apt name. It was interesting because local councils in Britain at the time, they could give temporary certificates for films to be shown if they hadn't received national classifications. So the London 
Council did and that allowed it to be screened in London. And I think it was screened in London for some time, maybe even up to a year. But the BBFC refused to give it an X rating. So when the screenings in London finished, that was kind of it for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And they said originally that if they cut the most violent scenes, which they said were Pam's killing and Sally's attempted killing, it still wouldn't be enough to pass the film because it was the, quote, extended terrorization of Sally that was particularly troubling. And I find that really interesting because that's probably the bit of the film that I have the most trouble watching at any time when I watch this movie is just this <laughs> this horrible stuff that Sally goes through. It's not Pam getting put on a meat hook. That's not horrible. Well, it is horrible. Well, I guess it is, but not in, not in the way that it's shown. It's not horrible. So in 1981, the film was actually released on video in the UK because until 1985... Video releases didn't need to have BBFC certification. But when that came into being, the Video Recordings Act of 1984, it was removed from the shelves and that's when it became known as kind of this video nasty, which is one of those infamous banned films that was too degenerate for British adults. As you say, it was reassessed in 1999, given this 18 classification for the uncut print. And a year later, it was shown on the national broadcast of the BBC. So that's really interesting. It took 25 years to say, oh yeah, no, Brits can watch it now. And it took one further year for them to say, well, let's just put it on free to wear so everybody can see it. Did you look up much about the classification history in Australia? No. The process in Australia is that something needs to be classified to be released. You can't get a banned rating. You can just be refused classification. So in June 1975, it was refused classification. An appeal was made that was rejected two months later. Four months after this, they shaved off six minutes and 20 seconds of the movie and it was refused for excessive violence. Four months after that, an appeal for that decision was also rejected. So five years later in 1981, Grady Union attempted to do a cinema release of the film and submitted the original cut of the film minus five seconds, which was, again, refused classification. The reason given was the frequent gratuitous high-intensity violence. So they appealed that, that was rejected. The following year, it's reported in the news that Customs has seized video cassettes of the film that are being imported from the United States. So, you know, boy, do I feel protected. How about you? It's not cocaine. It's just multiple copies of Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> so it wasn't until January of 1984 that the film was finally awarded an Australian classification, which was the highest level R rating, which means restricted to viewers 18 and older. And that cut was 20 seconds shorter than in the US, cited as having frequent, gratuitous, medium intensity violence. In 1991, an uncut print was rated R, and as of 2020, the film is still rated R in Australia, despite being put forward for reclassification every single time a physical release of the film on video, DVD or Blu-ray is done. And just to show that we're sometimes behind the UK, even though they banned this one for over 20 years, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was only first shown on network television in Australia in 2014. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was banned in Australia until 2006. So <laughs> we've had quite the history with those films. Yeah, like a pack of hounds. We were just having fun. You think this is a party? Please. You can make them stop. No, we <laughs> Shut your mouth. Can't be helped, young lady. Oh, please! Shut up! 
everything is inferred. All of the horrors are inferred for the first two acts. And then if we say the third act is from the time that Franklin gets killed, chainsawed in his chair, let's say that the third act starts there, uh, the violence and the psychological terror stops being inferred and it starts being graphically shown. And I'm not talking necessarily about gratuitous violence, but I'm talking about gratuitous psychological violence. And it is shown explicitly one of the ways that Toby Hooper does it so effectively is with the jarring close-ups of the inside of Sally's eye, which looks like this, this wet piece of jelly with this kind of very thin skin fold over the top and bottom of it. You cut that, intercut that with the hitchhiker mocking her. And then with Leatherface staring at her and he's got this woman's mask on. He's got this with a fucked up lipstick and eyeliner on it. And then you've got the moral schizophrenia of the cook who's um, making these absurd comments like, um, oh, no need to torture the poor girl and I can't take any pleasure in killing. But then at the same time gets kind of bloodlust when he sees them get really crazy with her. And so, you know, when you see somebody like Sally uh, and, you know, she's tied up on this chair that's made of human arms and you've got these three men and they are just so realistically deranged, it becomes way too confronting. All of this stuff with the MPAA and the audiences was a kind of alarmism because we hadn't seen cruelty portrayed and depicted as explicitly as it is in those few scenes. I think that's a good word for it, cruel. And and it's interesting that you bring up uh, Jim Sidow, who plays the old man. His role is really interesting. He does have this bloodlust and he is part of this murderous family, but at the same time, he actively tries to dissuade the group of teenagers from going and looking at this house that he knows is dangerously close to his own house. When I look, you, you boys don't want to go mess around the old house. Those things is dangerous. You're liable to get hurt. He's got this kind of idea of what is right and what is wrong with the world. So he, he, he will kidnap, he will tie up Sally to bring her back to the house where he knows the ultimate goal is to murder her. Out of the three, he's probably the one that's most able to put up the pretense of sanity. There's this quote from Toby Hooper. He said, the true monster itself is death. All the classic horror flicks have this in common. They have a unique way of getting inside you by setting up symbols that represent death. A graveyard, bones, flowers. If you put them in the proper order, then you create the most important aura known as the creeps. There's certain things that work to give you the creeps and I think that's the best thing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre has going for it is it sets it up so well with the creeps that then, even though you're not seeing much as we've talked about, what happens after that with Sally, this this endless psychological terror has so much more meaning because you have been drawn into the movie at this point. Obviously the film was made with a lot of compromises, but as I said earlier, many of those that turned to its advantage, they didn't have the budget to shoot 35mm film, so they shot 16mm film and blew it up. So this had the effect of putting grain into the print and dulling colours, both of which increased this documentary feel of the project. To counter having this increased grain when blowing up the print, Daniel Pearl, who was the film cinematographer, he chose really slow film, which has a low ISO or ASA number and requires a huge amount of light. So they shot on 25 ISO color positive film, 
which needs about four times as much light as most productions. So unfortunately they didn't really have the lights, but they made do with creative setups that were often shot and lit closely, and it helped that much of the film took place at night when it was supposed to be dark. This creative choice to shoot with low ISO film, it successfully offset the need to shoot on 16mm, which was cheaper in terms of camera rental, film stock, processing and editing. You make a really good point about Toby Hooper and the Creeps, because the film works really, really hard to set a certain tone for about 40 minutes, I would say. I mean, we get the radio announcements, and they're really gruesome, bizarre crimes that they're reporting, which sort of suggests the world is tipped slightly off its axis. Then we get Pam's astrology reading. There are moments when we cannot believe that what is happening is really true. Pinch yourself and you may find out that it is. Which warns that the day ahead's going to be disturbing and unpredictable. Before that we get the old drunk man and he's talking about I see things, people laugh, but you won't be laughing, that sort of thing. And then we get the ominous shots of the cows when they pass the slaughterhouse. And all of these things are just telling us that something's wrong today. Add that to the fact that you've got Texas, which is this bizarre alien landscape. We spoke quite a bit about Texas and how it was exploited really marvelously in Giant. And it is again here, but in a totally different way. And then, of course, those just those amazing sound effects, which Wayne Bell was responsible for the majority of those sound effects. Although I know that Toby worked with somebody who'd scored The Exorcist and that he actually used grabs of sounds that he'd captured while shooting The Exorcist. So, for instance, when Pam falls down and you see that chicken wire, that it was actually using Reagan squeaking in bed to create the sound of the cage moving back and forth. The first sequence when she escapes to the service station after Franklin is killed, the chainsaw is just non-fucking-stop. It is like this auditory form of harassment on the viewer, and it is so uncomfortable. One thing I'll say about the, the sound of the chainsaw and it monopolising all the other sounds in the film is that Texas doesn't have any body squish sounds. And if you watch a movie today, yeah, you have the chainsaw or the power tool or whatever the fuck it is, and they're like drilling into somebody, but you still hear the of like, you know, the skin. I gotta say, just quickly on that, I watched the first 15 minutes of the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Such a stark difference because it has so many of those sounds and it was so off-putting. Well, it's unrealistic. A, a chainsaw's fucking loud. You would not hear a body squishing while the chainsaw's going in. I mean, Texas did it in part because I would say budget, in second part because Toby Hooper wanted a PG rating. What it ultimately does is make the movie more terrifying because you're not conscious of a cinematic device detracting from a depiction of reality. And very often Sally's screams disappear behind the chainsaw. And actually when Pam is screaming on the meat hook, or gasping rather, and he starts up the chainsaw, the camera closes in on Pam as she's screaming, but it's a silent scream. That makes that moment so much more poignant because all this character has left to let somebody know that she's desperately in need and dying is her scream. And so when Leatherface starts up that chainsaw and drowns out her scream, it's just this final insult.
I think it's a really smart choice on the part of Toby Hooper to edit the end of the film the way that he does. So at the end, obviously, Sally has escaped. She's alive. She's going to survive. She's going to be okay physically. She's not going to be okay mentally. And that's why she continues to scream. And I really like that choice. And then we cut to Leatherface again, whose chainsaw also continues to scream. He's alive as well. He's going to be okay physically, even though he's definitely not and possibly never has been mentally. So it almost brings these two competing souls down to the same diagnosis. That's true. The ending conforms with the rest of the film and that it is just doggedly realistic. We don't get the fairy tale. But we don't get the other end of that. We don't get a totally nihilistic ending. I've heard people say, oh, Sally hysterically howling in the car shows that, you know, she's going to be, you know, fit for the loony bin. And I, I, I don't quite pair with that. I don't, I think that's overly simplistic. Of course, she's going to be hysterical in the seconds after she's escaping. It's going to stay with her. She'll be traumatized. Of course, we all just, you know, walk around, you know, carrying our trauma. But I think that there's still hope and a chance for her. And there is still hope and a chance for Leatherface because he's injured, but not mortally. We don't know that the authorities will find them. We don't know that he will pay for his crimes. It mirrors with this docu-realism feel in that we just start at a certain point and end at a certain point in these people's lives and that we don't get any particular resolutions. It just suits everything else about the film. It's beautifully ambiguous. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're supposed to read the crime scene photos and the news reports as a bit of closure. Certainly it's not framed that way because it doesn't come at the end of the movie. So I think it would be a bit of a leap to read that as closure. I think you're supposed to read what you see on the film as what the final result is that Leatherface is not dead. He is not defeated. He's still out there. He's still living. And and also Sally is not dead. She's not defeated. So, Luke, is Leatherface a slasher villain? Well, I mean, what really qualifies a slasher villain? I guess the only thing that really qualifies it is longevity and iconography. And certainly in those respects, Leatherface is a slasher villain. He's as much one as Michael or Jason. He's a far more conceivable character than either of those. Freddy exists in the supernatural, Jason and Michael in the preternatural. They're kind of of the real world, kind of not. We don't question why Jason's, you know, still a boy living in a lake 21 years later in Friday the 13th. And uh, we don't question why Michael Myers knows how to drive himself out of the asylum. I mean, there's an element of kind of silliness and, and logic defiance to those films that we accept, that we even embrace. It's part of the reason why we love those films. What distinguishes Leatherface is that he's far more conceivable. Toby Hooper even lets him look uncertain, out of control. He even lets Leatherface be a victim. It is terrifying for this man who is essentially a child that his house is being invaded like this. And so he goes to the window to check out if there's anybody else out there. He's, you know, has he got to go into lockdown? What's what's he got to do? I mean, he's just doing what he knows how to do. Yeah, and I mean, we see constantly throughout the film Leatherface treat the victims or the teenagers uh, as if they were poultry or produce that he's going to eat. 
I mean, you know, the way he kills Pam and Kirk, there's not really any pleasure in it for him. He's just going through the motions. You know, he just puts her on the hook and he gets rid of the boy and there's no sadism there. You might argue that there's a little at the dinner table when he's kind of eyeing Sally and kind of, you know, glaring at her, but not really. I mean, most of the sadism comes from the cook and the hitchhiker. And what's so uncomfortable for us as a viewer is, is somebody who can't make a distinction between human life and produce. We have deeply ingrained feelings about the value of human life. Leatherface, through poverty, inbreeding, or childhood abuse, doesn't make that distinction. It's not cruel, it's just ignorance. Pam says at the beginning in the truck, Oh, that's horrible. People shouldn't kill animals for food. I don't think that's just an arbitrary line. I think that was probably quite intentionally put into the film. Even when we see the cook swatting Sally with the broom, like you would a mouse that's kind of entered your house, you know? There are just constant little things that are reminiscent of the way that we treat the animals that we eat. The other thing that I feel like sets him apart a little bit from a typical slasher villain is that he's not hunting his prey. If anything, he's protecting his home and his family. And it's Gunnar Hansen's acting in that scene that really gives some credibility to the Leatherface character and that idea. I mean, Leatherface is masked, he doesn't speak, and he has a little backstory. So right there, we're on par with Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. In addition to that, he has this defining weapon, which is the chainsaw. So Michael has his knife, Jason has the machete, Freddy has his bladed fingers. One difference is that Leatherface has a family. He doesn't work alone, his family is kind of equally as demented as he is, equally as willing to kill. So I guess you could say the same about Jason's family, but his mother's homicidal tendencies actually predate his own. So Michael's family end up being his own intended victims, not his accomplices. Leatherface is a little bit different in that respect. Leatherface qualifies as a slasher character. He does. But Texas Chainsaw itself is not a film that is designed purely to throw a bunch of teenagers to the wolves. I think it's more than that. Grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Well, the whole city-country split arguably originated with Deliverance, where we have a group of men going on a boating trip through an area of wilderness that's about to be knocked down, I think, so a power plant can be built. So the idea is that the development of urban areas drives industry away from rural towns and rural areas, that we're eating up all of our resources, that we're dislocating people who uh, live on the land out of greed. And so, you know, the idea that we're essentially raping the land so that we can build this power plant means that these rural people come out and rape the men who are the representatives of that urban landscape. And so that idea has a lot of, I guess, cinematic charm. (laughs) And so we've played on that. I guess you could call it a trope. We've played on that trope over and over and over again. We've always had a fear of the other and rural country people represent the other. Carol J. Clover called them the threatening rural other. And she goes through some of their characteristics, which I thought were quite fun to read out. So she wrote that they produce psychosexually deranged children, possibly through inbreeding, that they're poor, 
which is certainly true of Texas, that they live beyond the reaches of social law, uh, that they have bad teeth. Clover writes that the country is portrayed as a world beyond dentistry. And the city-country split is largely about class. So the confrontation between haves and have-nots. And we see that as well in Texas Chainsaw. You know the one person who really doesn't take those privileges for granted? Who? Franklin. <laughs> I mean, he has such a childish fascination. Childish fascination. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> he has such a childish fascination with how the slaughterhouse works and with the history of his family in that area. Yeah, and to be fair, Franklin is the only one with any sense. I mean, I know he's annoying as goddamn hell, but he is the one that asks all of the questions of the hitchhiker about, oh, how does it work? You know, when did they bring in the gun? That sort of stuff. Then he notices the mark. He asks Kirk, oh, do you think I said something wrong to get him upset to make him cut me? And Kirk says, oh, you're crazier than he is. And also the other thing I thought was really funny this time I watched Texas was that Franklin kept sending everybody to their death inadvertently. Uh, there used to be a trail down between those two old sheds. Well, there's a trail down there between them two old sheds. <laughs> and it's like every time he did <laughs> he it, does. they went off and died. One thing that I think we should do for this episode is say our favourite Franklin line, whatever that may be, and try to say it in his voice. Well, I don't have a favourite Franklin line. Well, I'll do mine, okay? Okay. If I have any more fun today, I don't think I'm going to be able to take it. <laughs> I don't know who you sounded like, Franklin or Blanche Dubois. <laughs> All right, you have to do one now. No, I haven't got any, sorry. Just do one, Damien. I want to hear your southern, which always sounds Asian. I think that's why I won't do it. I think it's time to look at the release and reception of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, Hooper struggled to find a distributor for the film. Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal and AIP turned him down. Columbia agreed, then got cold feet. Bryanston Films, a small company making big money with the release of the cult porno flick Deep Throat, eventually won the rights for a $225,000 advance and Texas Chainsaw premiered in Austin, Texas, on October 1st, 1974. Texas had a slick marketing campaign and a sensational title, but word of mouth turned into a massive hit, even if the majority of newspaper outlets dismissed it as just another exploitative B-picture. The film cashed in on the driving crowd and grindhouse cinemas, which had been revived by younger audiences at the time. Stories soon circulated of people leaving the cinemas shocked, thrilled and dismayed, and sometimes nauseous, by the film's hyperkinetic realism. By the end of the year, Variety reported that Texas had grossed 12 million domestically. It finished as the 12th highest grossing film of 1974, beating out studio contenders like The Great Gatsby and Chinatown. Public demand prompted several re-releases from 1976 onwards. The LA Times reported that, within the first eight years of its release, Texas had grossed an estimated 50 million Texas never left the cinema and drive-ins. It's been playing somewhere around the world ever since. The filmmakers were surprised by their success, but didn't understand why their royalty checks were so minuscule. 
They soon discovered that Bryanston, the distributor, was controlled by the Perinos, an alleged crime family, who were funneling the film's profits into private accounts, cheating the cast and crew, many of whom had worked pro bono for a share of the profits, out of their royalties. In 1976, the Perinos were indicted for illegally distributing obscene material, namely Deep Throat, across state lines. The Texas producers won a lawsuit against the distributor, but were too late. Bryanston lost the Deep Throat case and declared bankruptcy. After many years of litigation, the courts ordered that the rights to the film be restored to the producers, who signed a new deal with New Line Cinema in 1988. Gunnar Hansen said, Today, after years of rumours, charges and countercharges, lawsuits and out-of-court settlements, no one yet knows who did what to whom. I certainly don't pretend to, nor is anyone likely to know how much money Chainsaw made. All we know is that we saw almost none of it. Whether the reviews were good or bad, every one of them helped to sell tickets. While most critics agreed that the film was well made, many were sickened by its seemingly pointless brutality, with some critics going so far as to question the moral scruples of the filmmakers themselves. Linda Gross of the LA Times said, Torture and gruesome death through a filtered lens are still ugly and obscene. Craziness handled without sensitivity is a degrading, senseless misuse of film and time. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said, It's without any apparent purpose, unless the creation of disgust and fright is a purpose. And yet, in its own way, the movie is some kind of weird off-the-wall achievement. Ebert's words perfectly summarise the conflicting nature of most reviews at the time. An uneasy mix of admiration negated by a hefty dose of moral outrage. Donald P. Berrigan of the Cincinnati Enquirer called it a highly convincing film and applauded Marilyn Burns' performance, but worried about what it might do to the emotional development of the young. Johnny Carson was similarly disgusted and spoke out against the film on his show. Some critics understood the film's genius. In a flattering review, Rex Reed said, The film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. Wes Craven, when recalling his first impressions of the movie, said, A filmmaker like Toby Hooper can convince you you're really at risk in a theatre. That's quite an achievement. In 2014, once the film had weathered the assault and achieved universal recognition as a genre masterpiece, Texas Monthly writer Stephen Harrigan remembered the film's release in somewhat apologetic terms. The movie is iconic and ironic now, so clearly a forebearer of latter-day sadistic horror movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street and Saw 6, that it takes an effort to recall how raw and sick and effective it seemed to us at the time. We were an audience encountering it out of nowhere, with no familiar tropes to grab onto. I'm sorry, did he just say, like, Nightmare on Elm Street and Saw 6? Because I think Saw 6 was out at the time. Oh, okay. That makes a bit of sense then. He was just saying from every everything as, like, iconic and classic and far back as Nightmare to the latest slice and dice movie. <laughs> Thought he was just pulling that out randomly. I really enjoyed Saw 6. And the highly accomplished Saw 6. <laughs> um, okay, so I think it's quiz time and it bodes well for me that you're drunk. Yeah, yeah, you are going to completely sauté me. Sauté, I like the pun. Okay. Thank you. What animal was originally going to be the dead carcass that teenagers drove past on their way to the house? Well, there was, um, I think in the script it might have been a dog, but also Robert Burns found a dead horse, but the filmmakers couldn't shoot the horse because 
it was too disgusting. Yeah, you're right. It was a dog. So Bob Burns found a dead dog and the team did three shots of it. But Toby decided that uh, domesticated animals are too much and didn't use it because it was too heartbreaking. Well, all of that's extra information. I think the takeaway is that I got a point for that question. God, yes. (laughs) Speaking of Robert Burns, how did he die? He worked on a film in 2012 and they still had no budget. And so he decided to suicide on screen so that it looked real. I have no idea how he died. No idea. Well, you weren't too far off. He committed suicide after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. He posted a farewell on his website with a photo of him stretched out on a tombstone with his name on it. That's interesting. And actually, I think that sounds less like a suicide than more like euthanizing yourself. Don't you agree? I mean, you've been given a terminal illness. You've only got a certain amount of time to live. It's barely suicide at that point because you've already got a death sentence. Do you know what? I admire people who have the courage to do it. What is the last name of Leatherface's family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Well, I think in the sequel they're called the Sawyers, but there's also a name Hewitt. They were given the last name Sawyer in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He was given the name Hewitt in the remake. In this film, they're actually, their last name is Slaughter, and it's seen on a sign above there where they work. So it's that owned by the Slaughter says, family. W.E. Slaughter. That sign says We Slaughter. Are you serious? They're not going to give me that point. W.E. Slaughter. No, it's not given until oh, Texas you... Chainsaw Massacre 2, the one that you're talking about. You're a pathetic, silly man. Yeah, it spells We Slaughter. That's part of the fun. John Larroquette, who provided the opening narration for Texas, purportedly voiced the opening narration for another Toby Hooper film, which was... Eggshells. Life Force. Ah, what do you mean purportedly? I don't think it's credited. It's just something that's speculated that he did it. Ah, okay. I was going to say because uh, that word threw me because eggshells was like, is you can't see it anywhere now. So there would essentially be no proof. Okay. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 brings back Leatherface, Grandpa and the Old Man, now known as the Cook, to pair with new edition Chop Top. How many of the original cast reprised their roles? I think it was only one. It was John Sidow. Yes, Jim Sidow came back as the cook and that would be his final film. Really? He was so good. So that's two for me, zero for you, I believe, if I'm not miscounting. Yes, Luke, it is. (laughs) Uh, How hot did it allegedly get inside the tin shed where they filmed the dinner scene there? I threw you an easy one. 120 Celsius. 120 Fahrenheit. I'm going to give that to you. It's I've got 115 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 46 degrees Celsius, but I think that's pretty close. Okay, how many masks does Leatherface wear? Two. Three. Ah. There's the killing mask, the first one. Then there's the old lady mask when he's cooking, preparing dinner. And then there's the pretty woman mask when he's sitting down for dinner. Which... Oscar-winning director claimed he became a vegetarian after watching the film. Which Oscar-winning director claimed he became vegetarian after watching the film? Yes, that's what I said. Yeah, I know this, and I'm not going to get it right. Uh, But I did read this, and I can't get it. I'll just say Spielberg. Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, see, I knew that. I I had read that. (laughs) You damn fool! You ruined the door! I will uh, just say I give this film four and a half stars. I think it's a very good horror movie that has grown on me over the years. I think it suffers a little bit from, obviously, some pedestrian 
acting from a crew that was not a cast that was not professional. And that's the biggest thing that pulls me out of the movie at some points. But apart from that, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised when I watch it, A, how good it looks, B, how accomplished it is for what was not a professional cast and crew at the time. It's really a remarkable film that even now has A, a lot to say, but B, a really individual way of saying it. And it makes you still very uncomfortable to watch it. I give this film five stars. To me, it's evidently a five-star film. I can appreciate what you're saying about the acting. I think with this film, with Halloween, with even Nightmare, all of the acting in all of those films is pretty pedestrian at times. I have to say, I think that the three villains in Texas are amazingly acted. I think the children let it down, the teenagers. But ultimately, the star of all of these sorts of films are always the director. John Carpenter is the star of Halloween. He got lucky that he had someone as good as Jamie Lee in the lead role. But even without Jamie Lee, I contend the film still would have been a huge hit and that Michael Myers would have been just as memorable. Texas employs the tools of cinema in a way that is just so expert. It makes the film such an effective, impressive piece of art, really. And I I couldn't go any less on the film. The film's sort of part of my DNA at this point. You know, when you watch a film so much that you like that you start to become a bit blind to its flaws. I think that's one of the reasons why I was a bit anxious to do this episode. I didn't feel that I could be objective about it anymore. You know, I've watched Jaws 2 so many fucking times that I don't even notice the things that are wrong in the film anymore. I know there's things that are wrong. Because the film is not perfect. It's very silly in parts. But when I watch Jaws 2, I totally buy all of it now. Texas is like that for me. It's a film I can put on any time. I swear to God, for this episode, I probably watched it eight times because there were four audio commentaries and I watched all of them. Wow, really? Yeah. Why don't you sign us off with what we're going to be looking at next? So I thought we would go something totally different and look at a film that is from a different decade by a different filmmaker about a completely different issue, but was arguably as groundbreaking as Texas and had as much of a connection to society as Texas had and tapped into the cultural consciousness like Texas did. And that is uh, Adrian Lyons' 1987 psychological thriller, Fatal Attraction. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Why are you laughing at me? Just because of everything you just said. Which you don't think is true? No. Well, maybe you should do some research, you ignorant idiot. (laughs) Um, Well, I will have great fun doing research on Fatal Attraction. I think there's probably only one more film that you could have said that would have got me more excited, and that would be Pacific Heights. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we could do it as like a double feature. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pacific Heights is definitely the B-side to that double feature. (laughs) That's very exciting. Um, very exciting. Adrian Lyon. Yes. Michael Douglas. Glenn Close. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. I'm just looking at this. You you saying it's not having too much, it didn't have too much of a cultural impact. It was made for 14 million. Guess how much it grossed? Uh, 87. 320 million. It always baffles me that Fatal Attraction got a Best Picture nomination. Well, maybe you should rewatch it. No, I I don't say that I disagree. It's just so against type. 
for the Academy to give that kind of film that award nod. If you compare it with films like Hand the Rocks a Cradle, Good Son, Single White Female, and all the incarnations that came out around the same time, it is of a much higher quality. Adrian Lyne makes some films that are so enjoyable. Like, his filmography is just so much fun to watch, in the same way that Brian De Palma did that for a long time. I feel like you're being very derisive with that comment. I'm not. I'm <laughs> not trying to. Just there. <laughs> you look so shocked. Our listeners can't see my face, Luke. <laughs> well, I'm describing it to them. You just, like, opened your mouth and looked like a little boy who'd just been told there was no Santa. You know, the other thing I think is that Fatal Attraction came out in 87 and The Accused came out in 88. And I've always felt like maybe they thought Jodie Foster wouldn't get better. So they gave her an Academy Award, even though she's excellent in The Accused. And maybe psychological movies, suspense movies wouldn't get better than Fatal Attraction. And then Silence came out and it defeated both of those fears. And I think Silence of the Lambs is probably the ultimate example of A, a Jodie Foster movie, and B, a psychological suspense film. I'm not sure how to view... I've never viewed Fatal Attraction outside of the world in which Silence of the Lambs lives. That's so weird that you equate those two films. I've never in my life equated them. Silence of the Lambs is a police procedural about a serial killer. Fatal Attraction is a domestic thriller about um, a family in crisis and a mentally ill woman. The psychological nature of both of those movies, the cat and mouse game, is what makes both of them so successful. Yeah, I suppose. I've never, I've never thought about it that way. Don't say I suppose dismissively. Well, Jodie Foster is working. She's a, she's a professional. She's doing a job trying to find somebody she's never met. Whereas Fatal Attraction, Michael Douglas lets the monster in. And Fatal Attraction caused so many problems because a lot of people considered it a, ra- a reaction to second wave feminism. The idea that women who'd been pushed out of the nest and were career women were somehow dangerous or mentally defunct. I mean, there was so much backlash to the film and that's half the reason why they, some of them say Glenn Close didn't win. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Well, um, that's all this month for Celluloid Junkies. Come back next month for our discussion on Fatal Attraction. We're going to be answering all of the big questions like, did Glenn Close deserve the bullet to the chest in the bathtub? And is that little child a boy or a girl? (laughs) We all hope that you're having a lovely evening and we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Market for the roughest, toughest cutting machine the world has ever seen? Look no further than the Poolan 306A. 13 pounds of power packed into this tight, bright body will have you slicing and dicing your wood in no time. 6,500 revolutions per minute. Make sure that nothing will stop this beast. Running on an 18-ounce tank, the Poulan 306A is made of magnesium and beautiful chrome-plated aluminum. It's built strong. American strong. (laughs) 
That's right, the 306A is made by Bierre Poulin right here in the US of A, little old Shreveport, Louisiana. The best thing about the Poulin 306A is that its bright green body shows off red blood splatter really well. So when you're cutting through leg, arm, neck, or torso and that crimson rain is showering down all over, you'll feel great knowing that you've really hit the right spot. The 306A is even strong enough to grind through tough skull bone, which is especially helpful when you're skinning for your next face mask. So if you're in the market for a chainsaw, look no further than the Poulan 306A. It's the first and only choice of slaughterhouse workers everywhere.